It is estimated that around 373 million Africans live in informal settlements and by 2050 that number is likely to increase to around 1.2 billion. Sub-Saharan Africa has the highest share of informal settlement residents at 62% with rapid rates of urbanization. This next piece looks at the work being done by Stellenbosch University Sustainability Institute around improving the living conditions for those staying in informal settlements. Hey, in today's episode, we talk about where people live, why they live where they live, and why we call it formal or informal. These are really difficult questions, but people live there. land was open, not fenced, or there were no security looking out of it. And when the people went to occupy the, the land, uh, the city were supposed to have sent its law enforcement, or Sandral were supposed to have sent uh, its uh, security officers. The expectation that the state will find a way to respond is a global, the global phenomenon. community says where there is proliferation of informal settlements, governments are obliged to work with that reality. The reality is that there are some really difficult questions that we need to ask, but there's also some very hard work that needs to be done. And it does bring us to some really practical issues. As a student, I would ask myself some questions like, how do we provide adequate housing? How do we provide proper road network systems that have proper drainage systems? How do we do all this with a minimum budget? How do we design for Islam that has already developed? As much as we faced such challenges as students, but these are the same challenges that low-income countries are now facing all over the world. A child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into the premise of transport planning, the trip generators and attractors, households, commerce and industry. From a transport perspective, we plan to get these we plan to get people to these places and around them as they change their travel patterns. However, land use issues are a complex and reflect juxtapositions between the formal and the self-informed, also known as informal. While we see this in the minibus taxi industry on our day-to-day -day business, the scale and magnitude, if not intricacies, in the land use and human settlement context needs a nuanced conversation. So we cannot help but reflect on the multidisciplinary nature required to confront, develop, and reform informal housing to human settlements. This sentiment is continental and in some areas more acute than others. So our guest today, Numbuko Singwenya, takes us through these complexities for us novices in the housing to human settlements trajectory. Transport planners, economists, and practitioners could genuinely derive some value from understanding where and how travel demand is derived, you know, where people live. Nubukosi, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and I'm really, really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Also super excited to be part of the conversation. Yeah, we've been we've been hashing this conversation for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, maybe maybe we could we could start at least with uh, a brief introduction for our listeners, especially those who are far from the urban planning or land use planning um, environment. Um, give them an idea of who you are and um, what you do and why you do it. Okay, awesome. Uh, so I am Nobukosi Wenya. Um, I 
I would describe myself as an urban planner, first and foremost, but I am also a development practitioner and a researcher. Currently, I am a junior research fellow at the African Universities. I'm involved in a project called PEEP. Um, and that project really uh, is exploring kind of the, the interface between top-down settlement transformation processes and bottom-up, which is citizen-driven movements transformation processes. Um, in between all of that, I'm also doing my PhD, which looks at uh, informal land occupation as an alternative approach to planning. And yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Jeez, that's that sounds a bit complex because, so you're dealing with um, so on one hand you've got this participatory element and then you've got bottom up top down and and you've got um, informal housing blended and all of that. That's that sounds a, it sounds a bit sounds a bit complex. Um, how do you how do you survive? <laughs> um, chocolate helps you get by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Um, but it is really a complex set of processes and activities that are fitting. Um, and but it must be done because we do need to understand what is driving change, particularly in the human settlement sector. Um, if we are to improve uh, one of the biggest challenges facing, um, which is the sustainability of our human settlements, but also entwined in that, an integral part of that is the housing crisis. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I I always so when when we started really, I one of my biggest concerns was whether you know this was this you know the housing the housing crisis whether the housing crisis is new or not, you know, and and I stumbled upon um, some work from uh, Susan Parnell, so she did something on. Um, I think it's called something about negotiating segregation, something like that. And okay. in in the article, so in the article, she talks about how how um, there there was a lot of um, it wasn't linear. So the effort towards segregated housing wasn't straightforward. It was very complicated. There was a lot of politics um, involved. But um, what what was really interesting was that under the public health and natives um, legislation, the state set out to construct both location housing for Africans that would simultaneously sanitize the white city, thereby establishing the segregated infrastructure that still characterizes South African cities. And that's like, end quote, uh, you know, from her. And I, I'm I'm quite blown away by, by, by the sentiment because... In in the U.S., something similar, but just in a different tone. I think it's the Housing Act of um, what's it, nineteen forty nine, and um, Richard Rothstein describes this quite interestingly, where he says that um, the segregation of public housing in urban areas and the subsidization of white families to leave urban areas to the suburbs created the kind of racial patterns that we're familiar with today, and this is in the U.S. So we talk about apartheid spatial planning and, you know, it's a casual term and it's everywhere. We all talk about it. It's just like a, a buzzword at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, I wonder, you know, what the housing situation was like in, in the apartheid era. And, 
and have the past 60 years or so you know fed into or fed the seeds for the housing crisis that we have today absolutely um i mean we whenever we examine any phenomenon in the housing crisis being one we have to look back in time and back and really unpack the processes that occurred um, earlier to give rise to the situation that we have now and absolute housing crisis is deeply, deeply rooted in things that happened even before apartheid in the era of British rule. So if we if we go back that far, um, segregation was always already happening in in not not to the same extent as it was occurring under apartheid, but even under the era of British rule. Um, and really, that was also driven in part by modernist concerns of the, of the ideology of modernism which argued and in principle for the kind of separation of land use so residential use would be allocated would be in one part of the city and industrial use would be another part of the city and so forth um, and then over time and in the south african context and, and to some extent in the american context as well um that really got kind of twisted and the, the race layer was infused into it um, to give rise to your townships, um, what we now know as our townships, but then would, and also the homelands areas um, as they are today, or former homelands areas now, and apologies. Mm. Um, and, and even in then, I must, I must point out that also, even with the with implementation of the Group Areas Act in the 1950s, um, at the time, government was not actually providing housing for for your your African population, right? So then, that's when the, the kind of the backlog started happening. And if you look at a, a city like Cape Town, where even after the mass housing project, um, the, the state-led housing development started in in that era for some time you still had infrastructure control. So a lot of individuals who were in the city but did not have kind of your passes and your permits to be in the city, resident in the city for work, were, were not catered for in terms of housing provision. And and then we could read the clocks on building up slowly but surely. So we get to about the 80s, they were now kind of shifting into the era of privatization and neoliberalism is taking over internationally and both locally, um, shortly before South Africa transitions to democracy. And then we also have a period where some of the state housing stock, public housing stock, sold off, right? And so instead of keeping that housing stock as affordable and maintain and keeping it in perpetuity as, as affordable housing, that stock was sold off. And so we also then ultimately lost a huge chunk um, of state housing in that process leading to further um, kind of compounding the housing prices a bit more. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the idea of modernism seems to be very, um, it's almost everywhere. Um, Mexico, I think, suffered, I think Brazil actually in general suffered from the same thing. Uh, Mexico to some extent maybe. But more, I think, more likely Brazil, where we're sort of confronted with the, I think it's the favelas, 
and there's this huge there was a there was a presentation a couple of years ago where I just can't remember who was making the presentation and she basically described how the how modernism played a fundamental role in 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 separation and and in creating you know not just the, the physical separation but I think even the epistemological separation between people culture practice you know and and just created this wormhole of psychopathy that was just separate you know really you know like almost like almost like um creating these um these compartments and people socialized in those compartments somewhat like oh, yeah. um a spatial allegory of the cave you know and that's that's crazy how many years do you think this has been happening for Oh wow! Since the at least the eighteen hundreds. Wow. At least the eighteen hundreds. Wow, that's um, crazy. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's it's absolutely absolutely crazy. And I mean, when you think how long this has been happening, it also raises very interesting questions about the time frames we've set for ourselves to address kind of the the extent of legacy that you mentioned earlier. I mean, is it realistic to say it's been 26 years, this should have been addressed by now? Or are we putting too much pressure on government and ourselves as practitioners in the built environment to address this legacy in such a short frame of time, but also given the limited nature of the that we have currently? Mm. And if you, you know, thinking about like how long it's been, um, in place for and already the cultures we've created in townships and suburbs and even the transition cultures like people moving from the township into the suburb or people moving from an informal settlement to informal settlement to a township or a suburb you know we've created these interesting cultures of place and organization um, these the social networks that we have there and I wonder if if you know our 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 plans or our imagination to to change this and say well we 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 want to have integrated housing etc could actually be hindered by people's preferences you might find that maybe you know like in your work are you seeing people people aren't really keen to move out of where they are or you know like what are you seeing in terms of people's inherent preferences for being where they are I think we're, as humans, we tend to be comfortable where we are. We tend sometimes, especially when it comes to big, some, a big change like moving to a moving house or moving to a new neighborhood, um, we tend to not to stay where we are. And I mean, I completely, I completely understand. And and I mean, we're not all, we're not the same. So I think it would be kind of disingenuous of us or short-sighted of us to to believe that the plans that we create as planners um are going to work for everybody there's a lot of consent involved um, and there's a lot of negotiation involved in the planning um and and there are a lot of interests at stake and unfortunately not everybody's need met at that at, at each particular moment in time so there's a lot of give and take um, and undoubtedly, there are individuals who would rather stay where they are for various reasons. Like, for example, access to social networks, um, 
uh, yeah, so access to social networks is a big thing, but also in terms of access to economic opportunity. And there are those who, for various other reasons, would love to move from where they're trying to stay into another part of the city for those exact same reasons, because maybe their networks are in that other part of the city, or they will have better access to, um, to or, or have their kind of access to this particular opportunity will be um, should they move to another part of this. Um, but again, this also is related to income mm. in the day because mm. whether or not an individual can and is willing to move also depends on financial resources and economic resources. Mm. So if I, as an individual, don't have the money to move, um, um, it's not going to be a choice that I can make. So the question is, do individuals have that choice in the first place? Mm. Or is it a choice that being upon them? Mm. And so, you know, when it comes to choice, you know, a lot of the times, at least what I've seen is, you know, two, two big conversations about um, informal settlements in South Africa. You know, uh, there's been a lot of um, backlash against this um, informal settlements being located very close to the railway lines, for example. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of, I think I saw this in Yesteros, where people were, were basically occupied some land and they were living there. And and then some in some for some reason, the state responded um, negatively by destroying the, the the settlements that they that had that they had erected there, um, and okay. and and I'm quite curious about you know why are informal settlements there? You know why do why do people? Is it a choice that the, that they sort of emerge? Is it you know is it on purpose? Um, because I mean, so in our last discussion we we talked about this, um, but. I, we touched on the nexus between keeping pace with the moral ambitions for providing housing and, oh, yeah. and, and then the informal occupation of land. And these, these two themes are almost running in parallel where you also see the state moving people off, but then people still need a place to stay. So you explained how this is manifesting in the judicial dynamics between community engagement, right to access, adequate housing and housing project development. So, I, I would really, I would really like you to take us through. You know, how how do informal settlements come up? You know, what causes and contributes and perpetuates their emergence? So, there. I mean, there's no simple answer to that, right? Um, mm. And uh, I'm trying to think how to how best to put this. Um, there really is no simple answer to what causes an informal settlement to occur. Mm. But at at the very very basic level, it's the fact that individuals or households need place to live, mm. right? Mm. The reality is that at the present moment, and even though government has a really really ambitious housing program, we're not building enough affordable housing. In fact, we're not building enough housing at all. Mm. Um, I mean, the last estimate that I saw, I think, was for twenty eighteen. Um, and the estimate was that the government builds about 4,000 to 5,000 houses 
in Cape Town and Europe. Wow. That's not enough to make the demand for affordable housing in the city. Wow. Right? So, and so in absence of formal options, and I mean, also when we look at rent, the, the private sector is roughly the same number. When we look at rentals, it's really, really unaffordable for most people who need housing. I mean, Cape Town, Cape Town is also quite weird and interesting. There's even a lot of young professionals starting out in kind of the working space um, also actually technically can't afford rental um, in your more upmarket suburbs. So mm -hmm. there's that aspect to it in, in the Cape Town context. So we're not building enough houses. And in the absence of, of, form, of access to formal housing, citizens are making are making a way and one of those ways is through the occupation of vacant land parts of more recently the joke context also the occupation of vacant buildings or underutilized buildings hmm. and just just to meet need so so we have two two things that are happening right the one is we have occupation of vacant land yeah and and then we have occupation of vacant buildings vacant buildings yeah so okay so how does that work exactly so so people people start living in a building that's just empty or or how does that actually work like how does that manifest itself or do they hijack the building um so the term hijack building is a very jovial term. Yeah, I know, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, but I'm a little bit hesitant to use it where, where my, yeah. not even just a little bit, I'm hesitant to use it uh, where my research is concerned. I don't think it, it quite captures the, the kind of the dynamic of, of what's happening on the ground, mm -hmm. or rather in the buildings. Mm. Right. Um, so in some instances, it's it's literally kind of a, um, um, individual kind of spot that the building is vacant, and then kind of the building is is occupied uh, one room or one at a time, and, and and so that's kind of not where the, the occupation is not organised. And then in more recent um, instances with such as those of reclaim the city it's much more organized where you see uh, a social movement um kind of organized and then like purposely go through with the intent of occupying the building and this and in this case it's a state building that has been occupied and then over time then more and more individuals in need of housing then join the occupation after a certain period of time but of course uh, with very, within very strict house rules and guidelines around who can come in or can be part of the occupation and kind of how they are in, allowed to take part in the occupation and live in the building. Wow, that's fascinating, actually. So on one hand, you could have like people trickling into the building, which would be very, very like chaotic. Yeah. And, and it's probably what we normally see. Or hear about, yeah. and then it hear manifests about. into like a like a like a, a fully occupied building. 
But then on the right. other hand, it could also take on a more organized approach. Um, and so what kind of moral value does, does, the, does the organized framework bring to, to, um, to the residents that, that want to live in these buildings? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by moral value. Okay, so what I mean is, if, if for example, people are trickling into a building, then, yeah. so the enforcement of power over that building would probably come from someone who has a lot of influence, has a lot of power, and is most probably, whether socially influential or has, you know, a, a, a violent streak behind them. So it could be a gang leader or it could be someone who can express a significant level of control over that building. So if you have an organized or if you have an organized group of people who are basically facilitating the occupation of a building in a way that is reasonable, then you know what does that mean to the people who live there? Are they are they living in fear? Are they comfortable? Are they secure that nothing's going to happen to them? They're not going to be evicted in inverted commas, you know? So, you know, uh, what value does that bring to them, you know? I think, um, so there's there's two parts to this. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying this with specific reference to kind of an occupation such as ones by reclaimed city. Hmm. I think there is value in kind of a very organized, in or being organized in that to that level. Um, to the point of having a, a, an NGO behind you, and in this case, who offer legal services. So there is a, a, a little bit of security in that, um, knowing that you've got this ally who is able to then take on the owner of the building, in that case, it could be the city, and um, should you need to report, they're able to act on your behalf. Um, and in terms of life on the occupation, in the occupation itself, and uh, and um, not to speak on behalf of anyone, but from what I've witnessed and seen, um, the House Leadership Committee has been formed, and and it's a it's a committee that's elected by the residents themselves. Mm. Um, uh, so it is, well, yeah, it, it is. A fairly democratic process, um, but uh, but again, this is me speaking as an outsider, uh, so I need to point that out. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it, it seems to be working quite well mm-hmm. in terms of organizing um, uh, access into the building and, and kind of restricting access for non-residents in terms of building maintenance, uh, upkeeping with building maintenance and that sort of thing. Um, but as well as a lot of social initiatives that are happening within the building themselves. So there's a, there's like oh, yoga sessions that are, are available for the residents. Um, and I think for the community, the last time it was, this was before Corona. Um, but also there was uh, every Friday evening, they have like the cook for residents who are more needy. Uh, there's at least one meal and then is secured. Um, and they have other such social initiatives which provide extra level of of comfort and and security in a sense. Um, and and it really does make kind of a communal living um, 
much more pleasant, if you can put it at that. And then for those who are working, there's also access to childcare. Um, some of the ladies in the in the building do offer your kind of daycare services and will look after children whilst other parents who who are employed go to work. Um, so it does afford a level of of comfort and security in that sense. Um, yeah, that you know that's I think in many ways. That would that would make a fascinating uh, documentary where you sort of get like a, a different perspective around that because now that I think about the idea of hijacking, it it's almost a very negligent approach to talking about people who are just basically looking for a roof over their heads and find, exactly. you know and, and navigating the city and you find a place where you can actually. Um, settled and 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 given that it's not a building that that the landlord is really visiting often or you know is working on, I mean it is you know the most viable location to be in. Um, and yeah, it's very 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 interesting. And thank you for that. You know, um, if, if, if I can just say, Tiffany, I mean, I think the way in which public discourse around the occupation of land in general and and I mean the term land in this instance very broadly to speak of land and vacant buildings um, has been framed in very very terms and that and kind of public perception on occupations is, is really really driven um, through the media from a state perspective mm. and the state has very kind of technical and legal rationality that influences all of its activities for the state not having permission from the building owner or the landowner to occupy automatically makes um, the activity illegal and in that sense it's bad and it's undesirable for the city. Whereas if you kind of flip it and look at it from an occupier's perspective, it really is about trying to access a dignified roof of one thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. then that's when the, the, the moral, that's it. That's really when we're able to check the moral aspect of occupations and not just being led by the kind of technical and more dominant discourse. Mm -hmm. And that's that's actually one of the one of the things that that really caught my attention when when we sort of sort of really talk about this, because if in practice, um, we sort of come into come into a location or a space, and you're seeing uh, informal settlements, and you know the immediate sort of line of of, of discourse is, oh well, why why are they erecting shacks here, or um, why why can't they build it with brick and mortar? Um, why are they you know clustered so so intensely? And especially if you're if you're black, one of the things that that come up as well. I know a lot of friends who are from there. A lot of I know a lot of friends who've been there. I've been there. I've been visiting there. And but then it still becomes this this ex, external kind of conversation. It's like a distant kind of thing. It's a silver lake that you point at like a tourist, and you only visit it when 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 you need maybe alcohol or or you visit it when you're going to visit someone. Um, but then there've been some interesting opportunities to transform, um, many of, many of the townships and the, the informal settlement spaces. But I'm curious, 
about two things just to get into the, the, the self-informed housing kind of setup where, you know, where does that come from? So building occupation, we sort of have a little bit of an understanding about that, at least good perspective. But what's the perspective from the, the self-informed housing? Where is that coming from and, and why is that happening? So it's a, it's a similar dynamic driving part of the development informal segment. It's about access to housing. Um, so in some instances, and kind of what's more often spoken about, spoken about is that you get new individuals, new households coming into your bigger metropolitan areas to access opportunities. And one of kind of the gateway into the city would naturally be kind of the periphery of the city, which is where most of our towns are, and where, because of the, the manner in which the, our cities have developed, um, that's where kind of the more, more vacant land is available. Um, and should I add, potentially less policed is available. <laughs> um, <laughs> that does become a factor. That does become a factor. Um, so, so that, in essence, is, is a gateway into the city. So, and we find that because the land values there are cheaper, um, an individual is able to get a space, um, rent or rent a shack um, in an informal settlement for much, much less than you would if you were trying to rent a backyard dwelling or where assuming that those are available for any are available for rent or trying to move in to get a flat. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, and in other instances you also have natural population growth. Um, you have households that are significantly overcrowded. Right? Um, overcrowding has been a, a huge concern since the eighties, if not before. Mm. Um, and so that also, so that also is a huge, huge factor in terms of when when individuals grow up, you become a young adult, you stop working, but you need your own space, right? Mm. You you want to chill and hang out with your friends in your own space, or it's just there's so many other individuals in the household that in order for you not to be an additional burden or for you to create space for somebody else in the household, you then need to look for alternative accommodation. Sometimes, and in some instances, for those households that um, have received uh, formal housing, um, the backyard's already occupied in full. Mm. So other alternative then, or the only alternative then, in the, given that the likelihood is that one's income is not going to be enough for one to be able to rent elsewhere in the city is to look for a space on the vacant piece of land if there's a new pension coming up or to then rent um, a space in, in an existing informal settlement. Yeah, and this creates a, a new kind of market for, you know, the, 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 the rental sort of the, the self-informed or informal housing rental market is, is you know, right. where, where, you know, how does that actually work? Because I think a lot of the times um, many people just think that people just build new shacks, but actually there is a market there um, where people rent, uh, 
um, these properties out? Yeah, so there is an, an, a, a huge market. I'm not entirely familiar with the dynamics, mm. but you do have kind of um, those with more resources who are able when what occupation is beginning or in more established segments are able to then buy a plot and build um, structured up houses up that they can then rent to others. Right. So, the, so that kind of rental market is is really, really a, a portion of of the affordable housing and the affordable rental um, need. Mm. Just in terms into extent the need for affordable housing and affordable rentals in the city. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I so I'm I'm turning uh, our heads a little bit towards. The article that that you that you and um, Lisa wrote, um, so this one's titled "Conflicts Between and Within uh, the Conflicting Rationalities of Informal Occupation in South Africa." So one of the so I'm I will be pulling out a couple of lines from 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 your article, um, but I'm gonna start like almost right at the end, and then we'll just sort of work yeah. our way into the other pieces because of what you just outlined now. You know, um, so in your closing argument, this is, this is a fascinating closing argument. It's very difficult for anyone, but it's a very fascinating um, closing argument. So um, it's an open quote. Um, While deeply contested, it remains one of the few options for households who are not served by the formal market or public sector delivery systems. Okay. In validating occupations as a legitimate mode of urbanism, we, of course, bump against the modernist regimes of property rights and land use regulation. Then you say it would be a mistake to romanticize occupations as a panacea for top-down and market-driven development. And so this is the the headache. However, there must be a place to acknowledge the contribution made by occupation practices to the production Mm -hmm of a more inclusive urban future. This is quite a difficult pill to swallow for, it makes sense, you know, mentally, but when you have to convert it into action, it's really, really um, challenging. And I think one of the things that, that I'd really love to hear from you about is how do you, how do you create a conversation with communities in such a way that you have a more inclusive urban um, or transitional or transformative conversation about place and space and how that's made you know so how do you how do you navigate through that um so i think for from our kind of point of view and our stand, from where we stand, it's not about creating the conversation. The conversation is already happening. Mm, mm. So it's about trying to get into and understand what is being said in that conversation, but then also to then bring that conversation into conversation with what kind of your local government, your provincial government, and your national government stakeholders are saying. Right. Mm. And to bring the two conversations together so that we can then see where there's room for innovation, 
there's room for something exciting quite different to happen so that we can then kind of incrementally um, realize the right to access to dignified and quality housing for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when, when we added that caveat about not romanticizing um, informal settlements or, or, or occupations rather, I think we were very mindful of the fact that oftentimes the quality of housing, that quality of soft-built housing is not up to standard. Mm. They were very, even with a roof over one's head, there's still many challenges to access to adequate water and sanitation facilities. Um, there's also challenges around accessing other services such as electricity um, and, and education and the list goes on. So it, it's for that reason that we we were saying we're not kind of saying this thing we're not um, unaware of the, the conditions of, that one is faced with when living in an informal settlement, but there is something in it, right? Citizens mm-hmm. are doing something fascinating that we as professionals in the built environment, particularly those of us who are working directly with the city or with any other tier of government, um, need to kind of pause and take another look at to see how we can then support that and, and ultimately achieve our goals. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating point when you when you really, really think about it because what what seems to be the case or at least one of the cases is that the so occupations are a type of demonstration you know like it's almost like showing what what is almost necessary um over protests you know and and but then of course people eventually do protest but they start off by demonstrating that we need housing in area X. And that demonstration is by occupying, just like, you know, people would occupy um, segregated bus seats, right? But, yeah. you know, that's easy to solve. You know, you just say, hey, everybody come on board. Um, the buses are not segregated anymore. Um, people would occupy or at least protest for access to multiracial schools, right? And that that's easy to address, yeah. right? So. You know, people could just jump in there and and attend those schools when the market opens up. But from a housing perspective, it seems to me, um, and I'm here. I'm actually following um, Richard Rothstein's argument. It, you know, um, it, it seems as if we, it's very difficult to make that transition, even if people are already occupying those seats. You know, um, and, and I'm quite curious about that because. Where, where do we locate the sort of the, the developments that we introduce to respond yeah. to informal housing? Where do we locate them? Are they where the informal settlements were, which is probably the most optimal place, um, or it could even be more optimized? Or are we doing it in completely far away fields in, in the middle of nowhere and there's no access to anything? So where, where exactly is... Where exactly are the interventions taking place in in space, really? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's kind of two strands to that mm. uh, when we look at, at government's housing programs. 
So we did have the upgrading of informal settlements project, mm -hmm. which aims to incrementally upgrade informal settlements in situ over time. Um, that has had varying success, but also the length of time that it takes to upgrade um, an informal settlement really does vary. And this is, of course, assuming in the first place that the, the area that the settlement is located on is suitable for human habitation. So that's the first that's the first challenge. Um, is is the area with informal settlement suitable for human habitation? But also then, because you have such high densities in informal settlements, that what often needs to happen is that in order to meet minimum requirements for the 30, 40 square meter kind of subsidized house, if, if we're doing the free swimming housing, um, you, you're, you're what more often referred to as RDP housing, mm. um, then a lot of residents actually end up needing to be relocated. Mm. And sadly, those relocation areas are often way, way out in the middle of nowhere um, and also poorly kind of resourced in terms of residents' access to um, their social networks for starters, but also in terms of access to economic opportunities, schools, you name it. Um, and uh, yeah. So they're, they're, that's a whole other kettle of fish that, that actually needs to be addressed mm. um, when the state provides alternative land to, to relocate individuals. And then on the, we have a second kind of strand of intervention, which is where we do greenfield development of housing. Um, and in that respect, so because we it's a numbers game um, and we want to roll the, as many houses as we the project, what often ends up happening is that where the only large tracts of vacant land are, are on the, is the periphery, and housing projects end up being kind of dumped in the middle of, well, in the middle of nowhere, um, so to speak. Uh, and then you just have really, really, really tracts of housing and not much else happening on the site, um, which is also very problematic in itself. And then where there really hasn't been much action, although uh, the last time I checked, uh, the city of Joburg um, was a couple of steps ahead of everyone else on this front, is through the development of inclusionary housing. So that's in your CBD and very well-located areas um, and working with private sector or mandating private sector in some instances to include a, a few affordable housing units within the development and upcoming developments. Um, of course, uh, developers, private developers are provided with incentives for that, um, uh, but also where government itself is also being encouraged to use uh, well-located land um, to build affordable housing in, in the inner cities. Um, Cape Town, unfortunately, hasn't made much progress in, on that front, um, when you, yeah, in politics, let's uh -huh. just leave it at that. Um, yeah, so, but I think across the board, everyone has, um, all the cities have a long way to go in terms of the development of affordable housing, uh -huh. um, in, in the city areas. But that being said, 
we already have many, many, many households living in our township areas um, and living on the city periphery. So the, the delivery of affordable housing really does need to be balanced with continued provision of infrastructure and services to the townships um, and and the you know, settlement, informal settlement, informal settlements included, because again we're going back to the number of housing units that both the private sector and the and government build combined. That's only about ten thousand on a good year. Um, that's not enough, and it's going to be a long while before we have kind of you know, densities in, in in the inner city areas similar to your Shanghai's and your Hong Kong's, or maybe less if we get to London or something. Mm. That is so challenging, actually, mm, because. I'm trying to I'm trying to get a breath of fresh air, but I'm not getting the chance. <laughs> um, the more you unpack, the more problems and and kind of stumbling blocks you come across. But mm. um, I I like to stay hopeful. Eventually, we'll get it right. Um, sadly, it might not be in in the lifetime. Many many many. Um, individuals in, in like our parents generation mm. um but I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get it right and you know I've, I've got something here um where so i'm just gonna pull this quote out i think um you and um lisa quoted this as well um and it's from the sagda the sadka i don't know how to pronounce this surname and watson uh, so, it, open quote, it's uh, the deep differences and divergencies between the everyday lived experiences of communities and governments, visions and plans do not necessarily lend themselves to resolution or generalized solutions. In some situations, we find ourselves dealing with seemingly irreconcilable gaps where worldviews and the very meaning of development progress differ so I'm I'm reading that out because when I read it I, I stopped and I thought about it <laughs> yeah, you know I stopped and I just thought about it and I was like okay um, you know if do we need a a mindset shift from you know reacting judicially you know, legally, that these are illegal um, occupations, these are invaders, and and maybe talk a little bit more towards the right to the city, um, and 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 really, can housing policy or practice in South Africa really really shift, um, and and is that shift justified? You know, so like, what would be what would be what would be the 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 I wouldn't say the balance, but perhaps say what would be the the most harmonious um, path that that you could chart at least from your observations for uh, city officials and, and urban practitioners. Wow, um, that is such a big question, and to be honest. I think this is this is this is kind of 
illustrative of where I'm at in in writing up my PhD. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just like <laughs> to really let everything just be. Um, <laughs> but I know that's not the solution. So um, that is that is. To be honest, I don't know. Mm. And 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 it's. And and that's one of the very kind of big questions that we need to really, really engage with because when we talk about a mindset shift and when we talk about a policy shift, which canon is that shift happening within? Mm. So our policies are really informed by Western um, Western epistemologies, Western ways of being. Um, kind of the discourses that we, we draw around development also very Western and really modeled around kind of and, and very Eurocentric mm. um, in many respects. So that's where when we talk about kind of differences in terms of the meaning of development itself, mm. that's where it stems from. And when you look at the multicultural nature of not just South Africa but many cities across the world now, right? Mm. I think the shift needs to happen only here, but across the world. And when we look back, looking now specifically on the African context, and we're saying again, we need to shift. What is shifting? Who is doing the shift? Right? Who is part of the conversation? Who is who needs to shape the conversation? And ultimately, what we haven't done enough of is to make room. Um, okay, make room is not the right term. Uh, I'll I'll think of the right term mm-hmm. just now. Mm-hmm. But is to ensure so de- in essence is to decolonize. So it's not just to de-westernize, but to give space to resurface other ways of living, other ways of being, and other ways of moving through space, mm. right? Mm. I think from from my understanding and from my research, that's where the gap comes in. And although we, in our various discourses, we draw on African terms and notions such as Ubuntu, um, and we speak of lehotlas and, <laughs> and that, but that's just symbolic. And yeah. um, let me get the author's name right. I want to say Sihlong Onyani, who's at Vit, but I could be mistaken, actually has a, an, an amazing, amazing um, paper on how we on how we've just incorporated these terms. We've stripped them of the essence of their meaning mm. and just thrown them in just buzzwords now, right? Mm. But if we are really, really serious about development, we need to have a conversation about what does development actually mean to individuals from different backgrounds. Mm. And it's you're reminding me of. Um... So on the Sunday Times, uh, this this past Sunday, Ndumiso uh, Ngobo's um, uh, column was about time 
um well sort of about time <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know and, and and so he starts off by by talking about how time was when when we were younger and, and in fact when you go when you go home like you know the home usually is um at a homestead or near a village or whatever um yeah. but what you find is that time is of no consequence you know you could so in his article he describes how he would be sent to go say something to deliver a message to his uncle and he would get there um so we'd walk for hours get there and then spend the whole day waiting for his uncle to arrive when his uncle does arrive they don't get to talk about that um they only talk about it if he's lucky the following morning or afternoon yeah. and then then he will he won't be able to leave that day he'll leave on the third day and still get back home and time was was of no was of no consequence but there was there was something about that depth of the relationship that depth of engagement that yeah. that that sort of that that sort of filters through the words that we're using like um lekotla batopeli um so people first so those those the lingo franc so to speak that we are using is nowadays of course really um doused in all kinds of things um maybe for political reasons or i don't know i don't know why that's the case but <clears throat> but but if you look at it more practically um let's let's go to mexico city for example i was reading something and they were talking about how mexico city had this massive massive program um from about 2000 or so just you know where they were basically was participatory budgeting um it was about um uh, integrated governance so they were basically okay. making urban plans um it also was transport sanitation um water everything in one department and the the drive was to reform and and develop um the the favelas right and all of this turned inside out when all of this turns into inside out when there was so much money you know going in that direction that issues around quality control um issues around proper planning um really sort of de- detracted the 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 core ambition which was really about um getting people basically getting the society to to understand the social function of property to to provide this public wealth of city tap into the public wealth of cities and so on so all of that fell fell by the wayside largely because of this procurement these procurement issues that just weren't managed properly you know and growing up i remember shubert park i you know one of one of our classmates you know lived in 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 shubert park and i never knew you know what was happening there all i knew was that big walls complex of of people mm-hmm. living in tall buildings that's all i knew i've never been inside right um and yeah. <clears throat> and it brings me to wonder you know you know it's shubert park and there is no park there right okay um it's it, it, it it's kylie but, but it's never new you know um i find it so interesting that we we struggle to have that conversation um you know and i just wonder what your thoughts are yeah i, I mean i think part of the struggle is that the it's 
it's not an easy conversation to have. Um, and once you start that conversation, um, then you need to also then unpack kind of other concepts such as the notion of good governance, because we're all about good governance, right? And getting clean audits. Um, and and how, how do you translate that into Mm. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure the terms are there. I, I haven't heard them, mm. right? Mm. And that's problematic. Mm. Are we developing a language to engage in these conversations with everyone in their other tongue or in the language that they're most comfortable um, expressing themselves in? Mm. Uh, it, it's one. It's also another. It's, it's one thing to say everybody can have the conversation. But if the language that we're using to have the conversation, I, I don't even know, mm. then I might as well not be there, mm. right? Mm. Um, and that then also allows kind of the, the, the dominant forces and, uh, and dominant in, in some instances where development is concerned, it means those with money, so those who are wealthy, to dominate the conversation and say yes, no, everyone was in the room and we all agreed that A B. But actually, if I'm lost from the moment I walk into the room and I have no idea what's been discussed, um, or in some instances, what is being discussed is actually not my primary concern. I have mm. another problem that I need to be dealt with. Mm. But you're just like getting to that or I don't you know I, I don't have the space to discuss that particular problem then how then what what how can we say that we have a conversation and that we've got consensus on the way forward mm, right mm, um mm. how do we then also create mechanisms ongoing communication around the vision of the city that around everybody's vision for the, for the city um should it only be a one, once every four or five years when we're reviewing our SDFs or when a new movement comes is being built in an area and an interested or affected were invited to come in? Hmm. Right. Hmm. I think that should be an ongoing conversation that everybody's party to. Um, the assumption has always been that because of the way the, the political system is structured, that the ruling party, um, the vision of for the country and the vision for each of the cities that the ruling party uh, puts forward is, is kind of signed off by everybody. Mm. Uh, well, at least those who voted. So we have a majority rules system, so the majority voted for A, a or B, right? Mm. But is that really the case? Are we going back to to communities to say, okay, how how then can we best work together to realize this vision? Or is it always just the case? And, and I think from from my perception, it's always just the case where politicians will make these very big uh, promises and they'll say, we will, we will, we will. Um, as in the politicians themselves, but it's never we the communities and us. So when when then do we also 
would need um, for communities to yeah. Um, yeah even with the, the, the little means that to in, improve their neighborhoods and their homes and their lives mm. you know so I I understand from from a language perspective right and I I'm one of those people who believe that um, we there's a there's a deep connection between language and logic. So the way, for example, I speak English is probably the the way I think about things in Tswana. So I'd obviously misplace certain things in the in the in the lingual plethora of things. I just I'll just misplace certain things, and it all sound illogical. But then in my head, it makes perfect sense, right? So okay. so th- I think in many ways from from a from a planning perspective from an urban planning perspective language is 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 also a place language and logic are really place specific as well you know and 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 at this point i wonder if if we we think of you know communities as assets you know um and 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 if if so you know what would that mean like so if if we thought as like if we thought of the invaders or people who are occupying buildings or whatever if we thought of community as as an asset and and yes it would have the conflicting views that you've highlighted in your work with Lisa i think very very interesting oh, yeah. um point maybe maybe you want to talk about that <laughs> right <laughs> right um but but if we think about communities as, as assets that that appreciate, um, you know, over time, and just, but but they require certain mechanisms for that appreciation to really um, uh, reveal itself. How how would that help? Like how would that work? Maybe from an urban planner's perspective, from a spatial planning perspective. Um, it it absolutely helps, and and that statement is there. Um, but again, it comes down to the regulation and the and and policy, and uh, and how much room it made for citizens to participate in planning processes. Uh-huh. Right, and I think uh, well, um, whilst whilst there is certainly ample room for citizens to participate uh, in, through various participation processes. We are faced also with a challenge that participation requires time, right? Mm. So if you are have to work, no one, or have to look after the children or loved ones who are not well or have one of many, many other responsibilities, you are not able to make the time or you don't have the time to sit and draft an email commenting on digital development framework. You don't have the time to attend a meeting on a Tuesday morning in the local community hall about uh, the SDA for any other similar matter, mm. right? Mm. Um, so it, it also then comes back to the issue of resources. Mm. Um, so if you don't have resources to support you taking the time to be 
to be part of this process, but also you need to know that these processes exist in order to participate in them, mm. right? So whilst a, a lot of work has been done in terms of informing communities um, and also it, because it's legislated by putting announcements in the local newspapers, um, still somewhere, somehow there's a break in communication and not enough people actually know about public participation processes as, a, as they relate to planning and killer. Mm. Right? Mm. So that then kind of whittles the number even further mm. in terms of who is then with those planning conversations. Mm. But over and above that, it's a question of resources. Does an individual have the time or have the resources to be able to delegate something like a lawyer mm. to comment on their behalf mm. because they cannot be there in person or do so themselves? Mm. And I wonder, I wonder if, um, you know, I wonder if where. So there are two things I'm wondering at the same time. The one is related to, you know, w when you find that communities don't agree um, about a specific intervention, yeah. you know, that that could be one factor that influences maybe how how people participate. Yeah. And 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 the other thing I'm wondering about is 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 whether, you know whether people uh, have an interest in these types of conversation or if they've lost like hope, so to speak, you know, I, I just wonder if, 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 you know, how these two, um, these two themes sort of interact with each other. Yeah. No, I mean, the kind of conflict of rationalities within communities is a big factor. Um, and that has seen many, many developments stall over time because there isn't agreement perhaps on the type of housing products to be built on the site, for example, or there isn't a um, consensus on actually uh, at kind of the, at, at the, the vision for the site, the vision for the neighborhood, um, if we're looking at it at a, at a broader level. So that absolutely does have an impact on, on whether or not development happens or stalls and the, and the level of engagement with certain process that an individual has. Um, another part of that is also whether an individual believes um, they will benefit from that development or not, right? So oftentimes for those who, who believe that they won't benefit in any way, um, and nimbyism, in my backyardism, is, is also kind of a reflection of this, is then to say, no, hey, we don't want this development on our doorstep because it will have the following negative effects. Or, or you're right. Um, and then coming back to the issue of, of, of I just forgot the other point that you made. Um, so the other one had to do with whether people have an interest or whether they've lost hope. Oh, yes, yes. So um, from my work and my research, I don't think people have lost hope. Oh. Um, they might not the processes, 
by government. Um, they might feel that kind of formal processes not available, but most of the you know, most of the the individuals that I've engaged with haven't lost hope. Um, they still do believe somewhere somehow they will get housing, decent housing. Um, and many, many, I must say this, many are actually willing to build their own housing or to rent um, that opportunity um, come up. But again, that depends on um, whether one, one is employed at the moment or not and how much income they get. Um, mm. I think, but people certainly have hope. Yeah, and that's that's what um, that's what everybody sort of um, how can I put it? We we cross our fingers that 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 is not the case. But as you've put yeah. it, trust um, is an issue. You know, I I just wonder. You know, um, there are a lot of things that that I still want to ask you, but um, one of them one of them has to do with um, technology um social and actual you know tangible physical technology you know what what can we actually do you know um if, if someone is listening and they are running a community program or they're confronted with these types of um uh, issues in in a community development program or in a new housing uh, settlement or or maybe even in discussions around spatial development um, you know, what can they do? What kind of technology can they employ to help them in the conversation? What kind of social technology could they could they explore to to sort of help them to bring some of these issues out to to the general public in their communities? What can they do? So I think um, it really depends on on the community. Mm. Um, while some social media uh, and some tech is widely um, ad adopted, has been widely adopted. Um, there's still also a lot of misinformation um, that's, that floats through this, um, especially social media. Um, so that has made people a little bit to engage or, or, or believe information that is kind of filtered through WhatsApp particularly. Um, but also given constraints around data, um, I think engagement on the platforms like, like Twitter and Facebook would really would be very small. So if you're really looking to engage with community, and and this would also have to be post-COVID, lost some element of online engagement mm. um, and social media engagement would would certainly um kind of be consumed um it really is that groundwork kind of door-to-door -door, spending time in communities spending time with individuals so that first of all people know who you are and what you're about um and what what your motives are. because again in the day people are not willing um to trust process that's being run by somebody they're suspicious of, somebody that they don't know. Mm -hmm. So trust becomes a huge factor in that. 
Um, but also certainly social media is fantastic for connecting with um, activists in this in your city and beyond who can also come in with statistical helpful information and advice and point you to resources. Um, and there is a large network of, of activists that were, and communities engaged in housing work, especially now, um, a lot more have popped up in, during COVID in the past year to find evictions um, mm. and share strategies around how in certain cities they've staved off evictions and have mobilized to, to what's this? To to protect tenants and, and protect residents mm. um, in this in this very trying time. But you also find that there are communities who just want to do things for themselves. Again, the issue of trust. They've been let down by NGOs who have you know, their agenda has been let down by individuals or researchers as well and um, uh, professionals come in for, with their own specific agendas and don't really incorporate or try to assist residents to realize um, their visions for their lives and, the, and their neighborhoods and the communities. Mm. Um, so you, ha you do have who would, even if you have the best intentions would still say, okay, but we've got this, we will call on you when we need ABC. Um, and then you have to respect that because that's their process and and how they would like to do things. Mm. And, you know, this is such, a, such an interesting um, time, you know, to be in because you were sort of caught between two, two worlds, the, the virtual yeah. world, and the and the the slow deep moving um face to face world and and okay. but then the issues are are happening in the face to face world right okay. you know the real experiences are happening in the face to face world and and some of the conversations are happening virtually as well so okay. yeah so maybe maybe people um who are working on this need to find like a balance between the two you know um yeah, um, I'd like to close off with with something a little bit more uh, implementation oriented, more strategic, because um, I think we've okay. we've covered a lot of the we've covered you know the broad picture of what we're dealing with. We we spoke about the intricacies of engagement, of consultation, um, and actually you know who are the the occupiers and how does that work, and then we 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 also talked a little bit about action the almost the philosophy around this as well um yeah and 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 so um i want to bring us back up you know um from basically from this uh inflection point and just come up to the surface where we can talk a little bit to some of the the transport professionals who are tuning in to this um and and really talk about this where where we fit in to to this type of discourse because okay. there's there's a quote i i shared with you this is a, a very abstract quote <laughs> very abstract quote um 
from uh, Virilio, you know, uh, it's very old, very old kind of extracts, but I took it out from the African Cities Reader, and, yeah. and you know, the article is really interesting, you know, it's mind-blowing, um, and I'll probably put that up on, on the blog, um, but the quote is about speed, so the blindness of the speed of means of communicating destruction is not a liberation from geographical servitude but the extermination of space as a field of freedom of political action we only need refer to the necessary controls and constraints on the railway airway and highway infrastructures to see the fatal impulse the more speed increases the faster freedom decreases and in the transport space we there's there's a lot of talk now, particularly from the state, about yeah. highway infrastructure, massive investment in highways, massive investment in, in railways. And yet what we're seeing in the Spatial Planning and Land Use Management Act, there is a deep conversation about making places more accessible, enabling people to move from one point to another more effectively and 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 then there's the layer that's coming up now which is around the 15 minute neighborhood you know can you access your most basic needs uh, retail um recreation and education um within 15 minutes work is a is a bonus you know where are we with regard to that you know are our programs from a housing perspective your rdps the greenfield and brownfield um structures are they in any way aligned with the potential for transformation for transportation development or transit oriented development or are we just doing things far from the transportation environment and and in fact transport is actually becoming this tool that that almost extends the sprawl i know taxis for example follow where people live so if you have a yeah. if you have an rdp um, or a social housing program that's 40 kilometers outside of the city and there are 11,000 people that are going to live there, there will be a taxi route that will come up, you know, that will spring up, it, it, you know, and that in and of itself is unreasonable from a spatial planning perspective because, you know, you're just inducing sprawl, you're spreading the city, you, you, you're increasing the cost of, of, of infrastructure and avoiding um, the... The returns that you get from agglomeration. So, how do what is it that we're missing in the transport space when we're having conversations with you in the urban planning space? Um. So the the car was one of those technological inventions that really really shifted how planning happened. Right. So suddenly we're no longer planning for pedestrians, but we were planning for this fast moving vehicle mode transport um, and that really really kick-started urban sport um, and got us moving people further bringing our cities further and further out and again thanks to modernism and the belief that technology <laughs> will improve our way of life um, we embrace that right um, so yeah that is, is Ridiculous. The structure <laughs> of our cities is absolutely ridiculous, mm. um, and we're absolutely having conversations about 
uh, okay, so the, com the, the complexity discourse seems to have fizzled out a little bit. Um, and and uh, we don't speak much, well, from, from what I'm gathering, the, the, the conversation around also the establishment maintenance of urban edge um, is not something that we really, really speak about much anymore. Um, but we are having conversations around transit-oriented development. Mm. Um, and, and that's been a big thing, particularly in Cape Town over the last few years. Um, and there really has been a, an effort to, to, to push that. Um, whether or not it's been successful, uh, I still need to... I'll go back and do my homework on that and, and, and assess um, and, and the extent to which that, the extent the success, the extent of the success of that. Um, but I think we, we do need to change how we're planning our cities. The idea of the 15 minutes is very appealing. Um, but again, we need to then let go of our our fascination with separating land uses, um, mm. and really, really, and really kind of shifting to what to a model of, of 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 zoning and planning and land use management that was more prominent in Germany, where yes, there was one land use that would be predominant in a, in a particular area, but it really was in essence each area really is an essence mixed use. Mm. And that's going to take a lot of doing. Um, again, the issue of time. Um, yes, we're facing very pressing challenges. But what is a realistic time frame within which we want to change the way our cities look and right and the way our cities are organised? Mm. Um, but also that comes with its challenges because then how do you? It's okay, and I'm using the term easier with the with a dash of salt, um, it is somewhat easier to bring schools, to build schools in certain in, in neighborhoods, um, to build you know, like your clinic facilities and in and your other social kind of facilities into various neighborhoods. But it's a lot diff more difficult to convince um, uh, your your oh gosh. Word is failing me now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, um, I know the feeling. <laughs> employers, yeah. your, your employers. So it's a lot more difficult um, to convince kind of your employers and your your corporates. There we go, corporates. Mm. Um, to kind of move, uh, or, or for those who are up and coming, to relocate um, their activities and kind of further out away from the CBD. Mm. Um, so it's also then a question of putting in the necessary infrastructure to make it more attractive for um, for business to want to look else out of CBD and what kind of incentives then what um, as planners 
are we giving to like your developers and your office spaces to put developers kind of in your township, for example? Mm. Uh, so there's so then there's that layer of coordination that needs to happen, but over and above that, I don't know if it would be advisable as well then to in the same breath, which is me contradicting myself a little bit, to want existing businesses to mm. actually no, not to think about it, it might be desirable to leave your PBD and kind of decentralize, right? Mm-hmm. Because if that happens then we have lots of office spaces that we can convert into affordable housing, which I think is a win. Mm. But from a business perspective and from a rates perspective, because again, we need to remember that cities, local governments rely on the rates that they collect mm. uh, to keep themselves afloat. Yes, they do get the proportional shares from national government and things, but a lot of their revenue is generated through the rates. Um, so if we decentralize, there's also the risk of businesses moving into smaller premises or because the infrastructure in those areas is not at the same level as yet, the amount of revenue and rates that cities would be able to collect from those um, enterprises would be less. Hmm. So now we run a risk of decreasing the rent space, which also has an effect on how we ultimately deliver services to those who need them the most. Gee. So it's a it's a, it's a real tricky situation. It's a conundrum. Mm, mm, mm. It it sounds it sounds a bit it sounds a bit um it sounds a bit tricky, um and you know the there was I think there was like a period when everyone was super excited about compact housing and mixed land use yeah. and there were I think the FFC published a report on that where they showed these wonderful estimations about the cost savings. Um, and, and largely, you know, from a transport, from a housing, uh, perspective, you know, this would, this would be the, the, the financial impact. Um, and, and then they forecasted the trajectory over, over an extended period of time. And, you know, the numbers seem to, to sort of make, make a lot of sense, but from what you're outlining there, there are disincentives, you know, for that, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, so, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. what are we willing to gain and what are we willing and at what cost, mm. right? Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and what cost to who, right? So, who, I mean, currently the way our cities are designed, we have um, kind of your working class spending, I think it was up to about 40% per month of household income and transport alone. Mm. That's not sustainable. So we definitely need to either figure out how to move people across the city for much, much less, and less in terms of actual financial, but also in terms of time, because mm. we can't have people sitting in traffic for 40 minutes plus one way. Right. Mm. Uh, but either we do that. In fact, it doesn't have to be an either or. We should <laughs> get more mixed youth um, kind of going and getting at least, if not, if not, activity that you 
know, more social activities mm. um, and other activities much, much closer to people's homes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could go on about this. Um, I've got questions about shopping malls. I've got questions about, <laughs> I've got questions about, um, you know, ring fencing rates. You know, I've got questions about um, even devolution and and key performance indicators for officials. But I think yeah. for the sake of you know, keeping our heads intact um, for the time being, um, let's let's uh, let's leave the hanging fruits. You know hanging yeah. we'll, we'll pick them at a at a later date but I'm, Absolutely. I'm yeah but i'm super grateful for at least this introduction to to um to really uh, i don't even know how to title this one um <laughs> <laughs> you know it's really really amazing uh, but but really this introduction to, to to what what settlements are really about and i think from a transport perspective, I many of the things that we've just discussed, I knew nothing about, um, and and you've just outlined them in a way that that really really um, captivated me and and got me thinking about what what we need to do from a transport planning perspective um, to to help you know the urban planners, the spatial planners in 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 the work that they do, the town planners in the work that they do. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's a real big pleasure, and um, I've I've been uh, getting a lot of feedback from young people, young professionals, who are who've just started working or have been in the business for maybe five years or less, um, and and you know it's always really nice for them to to get an idea of what are the pressing issues that you think they could they could um, they could focus on. You know, yeah. you know, if 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 you if you were where they were, and you were looking at the future through a crystal ball, what do you think? Um, or or you went to a traditional healer and then pepper <laughs> the smoke, you know, started to show you something. What is it you think you'd be able to share with them um, about like, the main areas that they would be interest that would be of interest um, from an urban planning, spatial planning perspective? Um, I think for me, it's, it's, if I had to kind of pick one thing, it's to always have in mind that where people live matters. Um, and so with that in mind, how do we then make sure that individuals walk their best life? Oh. have access to all the resources and opportunities that the city has to offer. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something. Yeah, I, I, I wish I heard that like um, 10 years ago, you know? Really? It's yeah. never too late. Yeah, it's never too late, right? It's never too late. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us um, and thank you everybody for tuning in and listening into this conversation. We were speaking with Nobukosi Nguenya, who is um, by and large big deal in the urban planning and transport planning, urban planning and spatial planning space. Very interesting articles. I'll definitely put them in the show notes and um, hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you, Nobukosi. 
was a big pleasure thanks having you here. Thanks to everyone. Black and information on African cities is widely accepted, it's widely condemned, it's widely deplored. Personally, I think that some of the, the real gaps are actually our lack of understanding of Africa's urban history. You know, sort of what, what does it mean to, you know, what's the difference between Ibadan and Lagos? What's the difference between Mombasa and Nairobi? What's the difference? What, what, are, what are the specifics of those things? So the first place that I would, I would define data in its very broad sense to say we don't know enough and we need really detailed, really comprehensive investigations into how cities came into being, how their institutions emerge, why there are gaps where there are, what the contradictions are that exist. That's coupled with a lack of contemporary data of the kind that a lot of applied professionals need, which is, is much more kind of technical. It's about kind of, you know, do we have a map? Do we have street numbers? Um, can we please say what the growth rate is of the city? Um, you know, what, what are the projections that we need for how many houses do we actually need and how many taps do we really require? So, so I think it's both of those things. So it's both data and intelligence. Um, about the cities that we need to engage with. And because there are so many, you know, <laughs> we need to be really careful that we don't generalise. Um, there's a really real danger that we talk about the African city as if there is one such thing. Um, a week after recording this episode, one has to come to terms with a number of things. Housing, human settlements, transport, self-informed systems, cultures and narratives are a reality. There is a lot that needs to be done to resolve and find common ground, but it would be pointless if one party gets there first. If you want to find out more, visit www.hlulani.com. Listen to this to close off. Like... If anything, kids in Makati were asking for money. But here, no. Nothing. Not even one kid asked for money. Hello. So, it's amazing to see, like, the poorest people actually don't bother asking for money like that. But the kids in Makati, in the rich area, ask. Firstly, um, I think... No humans should be living in this condition. Um, it's sad to see. And it's pretty much what corruption does, I guess. Um, but life is, you know, it's, it's hard in these places. And at the end of the day, all people want is somewhere to sleep, some food to eat, some water to drink, um, and go about their life, you know. And there's guys working perfectly normal jobs as security um, and living here. So. If you can't afford rent too much, this is what happens, right? So, informal, or informal, informal settlements, like, like this, living amongst, amongst rubbish and dirt and pollution and just unbelievable. So, to, I guess, hello, are you? I guess what I wanted to tell you is, firstly, you need to see things like this to makes me emotional, to be honest. Firstly, you need to see things like this to make sure you can appreciate what you have. And the other thing is, it doesn't take much to be happy in life, you know. If you got food to eat,